Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory, Lord. We thank you for your revealed truth through your word and the spirit that illuminates your words. Lord, we give you all the glory, and we thank you for the clarity in this matter. Offer up our night to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to start with a reading from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 17. Here we read the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Coloss. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without the hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised up with him through faith and working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of which is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. This text has been used by some to argue that Christ must have a physical body while seated at the right hand of God. I will make the point tonight that while I do not deny the body that Jesus had from birth to death was a physical, mortal, perishable, natural body. It was also the same body that was raised from the grave at the resurrection that Sunday morning. However, I do not know how or why it would make sense to say that he is still in that bodily form today. Tonight I aim to provide you with biblical understanding of what Christ in bodily form meant both before or all three in, before his incarnation, during and after the events of atonement, death, burial, resurrection, and parousia, and of course, what the reality is today, and what does that mean for you or us. It was Edward Fudge who, in his book, The Fire That Consumes, who said, the church's greatest theologians and most devout believers have always realized that God can continually cause new light to break forth from the word which has always been there. One of the greatest compliments that can be paid to the church is that it is always reforming with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and under the word of God. He continues, today's evangelicals sometimes take pride in the Ecclesia Reformata, the church reformed, while overlooking the rest of the slogan that says Semper Reformanda, always reforming. As evangelical Christians, it is very easy to claim the Bible as our sole authority, but fail to carry out the implications of that claim when dealing with difficult issues, especially if that means standing with the minority. Simply put, as Anglican missionary and New Testament translator Harold Gilbaud noticed, or noted, no Protestant should object to being asked to re-examine any traditional belief in light of the word of God, searching the scriptures to see whether these things be so. I remember when the topic of what form is Jesus today came to my attention. I had never really thought about it. Don K. Preston was doing a presentation at Criswell Bible College concerning the end time millennium, and this question came up. The fact that Don Preston responded by explaining that he did not believe that Christ retained his physical body upon his ascension into the true holy of holies seemed to cause a stir. Why, I wondered, and then began the journey. Last year, Bible teacher Larry Siegel had declared that it was time for the preterist community to grow up and start dealing with the implications of this view. He said it was time for us to stop circling the wagon. No more circling the wagon. Recently, in my visit to the Berean Bible Church Conference, it was exciting to see that Pastor Dave Curtis is leading his church 
in no more circling the wagon. They began to deal with the implications. We may not always agree on the areas of theology we've entered into, nor how we are dealing with the implications. However, it's exciting to, be, to see it being done. 2,000 years of baggage, it's about time we start getting our hands dirty. In an attempt to arrive at a contextual view of Jesus Christ's form today, I'm going to bring you through a couple different forms we find in Scripture. I would say this is a fair way of arriving at a full council perspective of this important topic of Christology. So in his incarnation, in 1 John chapter 1, verses, I'm sorry, pre-incarnation, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines into darkness, and darkness comprehends it not. In John chapter 17, verses 4 through 5, we read the words of Jesus. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then in Philippians, as well as Hebrews, we read about how for a little while Christ was made lower than the angels. He humbled himself and came as a man, a Jew under the law, to redeem his people as a living sacrifice. So the question we must ask is, in what form did Christ exist when he was with the Father before the world began? He put on flesh during his incarnation in the first century, but in what form was he before that? Brother Joe Daniels has some great insights in this regard. He has said, did you know that God appeared in a body of a man many times in the Old Testament? The Bible never says God cannot become a man, but it says God is a spirit in John chapter 4, verse 24. The Hebrew Bible itself supports the view that God can become a man or take on the body of a man without ceasing to be God. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 14. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 22, verses 11 through 18. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 30. Judges chapter 5, verse 23, as well as 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. You can hit rewind button to go back on those verses. Brother Joe continues noting, Why is it that no one questions whatever became of these bodies in the Old Testament, the Christophanies? that Christ used for, to accomplish whatever purpose it was, and then he went back to heaven. Yet people get so upset when we say that the same physical body of Jesus of Nazareth is not literally walking around in heaven. He did appear to people in the past in physical bodies, didn't he? And yet no one, I mean no one, asks why or how, how or what happened to these bodies. The Spirit of Christ was very active before his incarnation through the prophets. As revealed by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace which would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So let's look at also the Incarnation. So this Christ, who was the spirit that was in the prophets, that came into the world many times in different ways throughout the Old Testament, was to come into the world. As in the first chapter of John, he remarks this at verse 6 through 15. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all who would believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about that light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory, as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, 
This is of he this is he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So here we have whatever Christ was now becoming flesh. I'm not going to get into all the details tonight. However, it is important to note that flesh is used as well as flesh and blood to denote law in the New Testament. So actually, as well as the Old Testament. So what this could be saying is Christ put on human flesh or Christ came born of a woman under law, as Galatians puts it. Either way, we affirm Christ 100% humanity in the incarnation. In theological terms, this is referred to as the hypostatic union, hypostasis in the Greek, which means foundation, substance, or substance. And it's a technical term in Christian theology to describe the union of Christ's humanity and his divinity. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we read, Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Also, to further illustrate Christ's incarnation and ministry, I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Jesus' appearance as a man throughout the time of his incarnation is very clear and evident as the fact that he was able to get lost in crowds without being found. It, is necess- it was necessary for Judas to kiss him to identify him to one of the priest guards. However, this same man was able to walk on water in John chapter 6, verse 19 and pass through hostile crowds untouched in Luke chapter 4, verse 39 through 40. And it is with the selfsame body he was born with. Clearly, his body did not need to be resurrected to undergo the glorification many of our Christian brethren speak of. So let's look at the atoning work. In the beginning of this lecture, I read from Colossians chapter 2. It talks about, in Christ, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. Talk about a verse that demonstrates the deity of Christ. What the Apostle Paul is saying in this writing is that the traditions of men had been delivered to the church at Colossus, and their teachers began to be formed by an element of wisdom that was speculating and carnal, the Judaizers. As one Witness, as one website established, Colossians 2.9 is a wonderful assurance to us as trusting Christians all the attributes which are part of God's plan housed permanently in our leader and forerunner. The assertion that all fullness of the deity dwells in Christ means that everything is dwelled in him. It's not divided up and given to other things. In other words, to say that Christ's divinity would be divided up, it would imply that there were other mediating spiritual powers or independent spiritual forces at work which should contribute to their wisdom and power of God's salvation. This is not so. There was not a partial or temporary indwelling of God's qualities in Christ, but rather all the fullness. Christ is not the same rank with other spiritual beings such as angels, as revealed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. As the Son, he is greater than all those things that were created through him. In view of this, there is no need to seek introduction and wisdom from heathen philosophers or Judaizers or be under the law. Believers do not need other schemes of salvation except or apart from Christ. Sadly, instead of that verse being used to demonstrate that amazing truth, it is usually used as a proof text to say that Christ must still have a physical body. So, Are we saying that the fullness of the deity did not dwell in Christ before he was incarnated in the first century? Clearly, the text we have read thus far demonstrate that Christ put on flesh in that first century period to become like men. Oddly enough, at my debate with Pastor Bruce Bennett in 2014, he tried to hereticize me by labeling my views of atonement as heresy. Yet in November 2014, I attended a pastor's meeting, which was said to be about the two great themes of the Bible, atonement and end times. Yet, at this meeting, the ignorance and confusion of many Christian leaders regarding atonement and connection to the end times was manifested. It was made clear at that meeting that Christ's incarnation, Christ's dying, Christ's raising, Christ's coming are all acts of atonement. Yet, Pastor Bennett wanted to harp on Christ's declaration of, it is finished, 
on the cross as the end of atonement, therefore negating the need for Christ's resurrection, his coming, and many other eschatological events described in the Old Testament. Most futurists don't want to see the truth in what one pastor remarked at that meeting when he said, I never saw the connection of the atonement and the second coming until today in regards to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Sadly, this lack of understanding leads to doctrines that seem to lessen the once and for all atonement Christ has accomplished. For example, progressive sanctification. A doctrine which clearly fails to understand what was being done through Christ's atonement, making it about us receiving something in the future rather than the contextual understanding of the one hope of Israel. It is about us receiving some future rewards, or is it about God accomplishing the reconciliation with his people that was promised through the prophets? Better yet, has this been accomplished, or are we still waiting for Christ to accomplish his work? We read quite a bit about Christ's atoning work in the book of Hebrews, which I would pretty much posit was the reason why the book of Hebrews was written, to explain the glory of Christ over the glory of Moses. We might refer to this as covenant transition. And if I may just give you a couple of readings from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Matter of fact, we're going to go there. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to both offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it is he obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes honor by himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. What was said of God... You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the thing which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became all to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have... So much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You see here they're equating that Jesus Christ was this perfect high priest that understood his people. We're going to explain here in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, who also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And we see this is relating to Jesus Christ being of this lineage, of the tribe of Melchizedek, of the order of Melchizedek, rather than the order of Aaron, a different priesthood and thus a different law. In verses 22 through 28, we read, So much more, also, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. For it was fitting for them to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word, the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. We know that in Hebrews chapter 8 it notes that there was a covenant passing, a covenant that there was found fault with, and there was found a need for the second being established in Christ. When In Hebrews 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is being made obsolete is growing old, is ready to disappear. We know in that first century that, that it had not yet fully come to its consummation, and it would at the coming of the Lord. In chapter 10, we read verses 5 through 14. 
Therefore, when he said he comes into the world, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not taken no pleasure. Then he said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. For having, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting on the time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected all time those who are sanctified. And then in verse 19 through 23, which we'll actually read at the end here. So really what we've established is that Christ's death, he was given a body. He was, there was a body prepared for him according to the law. He was given that body to be a sacrifice demanded by the law, the law of bloodshed, for the remission of sins. And this is what happened at the cross. This was the beginning of the atoning work. This is what the high priest would say, it is finished. The controversy begins when we begin pondering, well, in what form did Christ raise from the dead? I remember hearing a Catholic Bible teacher remark that Jesus' resurrected body demonstrated to us what the complete and final form of life will be. Of course, I met that remark with a hearty no. Scripture specifically tells us that the purpose of Christ's physical resurrection in the grave three days and three nights was the sign of Jonah to that wicked generation. You can see Matthew chapter 12. Many of our Christian brethren want to use the resurrection of Jesus to demand some sort of glorified body. As Dr. Preston remarks, the argument goes something like this. Jesus was raised in his incorruptible and mortal body, and this is the body that the disciples saw ascend into heaven. Thus, since it was Jesus' resurrected body that ascended, his appearing, or reappearing, must be in the same fleshly physical body. This argument is based upon the mistaken idea that Jesus' resurrected body was an immortal, incorruptible body. To again quote Dr. Preston, does the Bible ever say that this belief is required of our faith? Does it say you must believe Jesus is still in physical form, a five-foot-five Jewish man? Actually, I believe Scripture clearly shows that this post-resurrection Immortal, glorified body of Jesus is false. Again, I will admit Dr. Preston is my go-to guy on this topic, and he has proven time and time again to be, an on, be honest in handling this and a great resource. He remarks, let's begin with the period of time after his resurrection, but before his ascension. On these occasions, there were times where he was immediately recognized. For example, Matthew chapter 28, verses 9 through 10. Mark chapter 16, verse 14. At other times, he was not. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 14 and 19. He says he is bone of flesh in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, and he ate food with the disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 42 through 43. His ability to vanish from sight is interesting in Luke chapter 40, 24, verse 31, but we cannot conclude that this was caused by a change in the nature of his physical body after the resurrection. Because what's the difference? My conclusion is that we have no reason to doubt that Jesus' body that went into the grave is the same body that came out of the grave with no appreciable change, not even decay. However, this is the self-same body that Christ had prior to the resurrection. He still has the marks. Are we to believe that the glorified bodies our brethren are hoping for still have all the scars and injuries that they suffered upon death? That sure doesn't sound like the, the body that Pastor Bruce Bennett went on about in my debate with him. Something is seriously wrong with this view. Dr. Preston has done debate upon debate concerning the resurrection of the dead, something I look to possibly do next year. In one of his debates, Don clarifies the inconsistency of the futurist resurrection in this regard. Now, there was a change in Jesus at his resurrection. However, it was not a biological alteration. It was a covenantal transformation. You can see 1 Peter 3.18. Like Paul, Peter is not speaking of any change of biological substance, but a change in covenantal stance from flesh to spirit. 
That is the like him in glory the saints will be blessed with or were blessed with. Covenantal transformation and transition. Don't worry, we'll get to that in a moment. So Christ then appeared in physical body, which again I maintain is the same body he had prior to his death, except now it had wounds from the crucifixion. Christ spent 40 days with his disciples and he ascended in glory. The anniversary of that ascension was yesterday, which I mentioned, which I should have mentioned earlier in the lecture. When we define the term glorified, we end up with to appear, to praise, honor of divine quality. And we see God's glory manifested throughout the Old Testament in clouds. A study on cloud imagery reveals the glory of God. Thus, when Christ is caught up in a cloud in Acts chapter 1, it is said that he will return from heaven in the same manner he went in, hidden in a cloud. We are reading about him being glorified and later appearing glory, just as he promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 through 28. This clearly demonstrates in Revelation chapter 1, 6 through 7, regarding his coming in the clouds, again, noting glory. It was also noted in the book of John that in order for the spirit to be given, the disciples must be glorified. I mean, I'm sorry, Christ must be glorified. His being glorified required his going away so that the spirit could come. You can see John chapter 7, verse 39, as well as chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. Nothing here demands that Christ retain the physical body he had as he ascended back into glory he once had with the Father. Instead, a proper understanding of the Holy of Holies and nature itself, when you ascend, it would demonstrate that his flesh would have been burnt up. After all, God is a consuming fire, and that's exactly what would have happened in the Holy of Holies. The Apostle Peter makes it clear that the glory of Christ and about the glory of Christ in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, we have received from the Father the promise of David, who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Are you ready for this? Let's find out what, the, what Christ's body looked like after he ascended. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, we read, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may will know the hope of his calling, what the riches of his glory, inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything in subjection under his feet and gave him overhead to all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you catch that? The church is his body. The confusion may many have regarding Jesus being raised up to the right hand of the Father can be understood here. Surely we don't believe that God the Spirit, remember John chapter 4, has a right or left side, or God has an arm, as we're seeing in our readings in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 11, his arms conquering these armies. Right hand is understood in Hebraic culture as the hand of fellowship or power. To be raised up to the right hand of the Father is simply meant to be put in authority to the glory which he, that he had with the Father before the world began. To understand this as a physical location creates all sorts of issues. Yet many want to demand that Christ is seated physically in some physical form somewhere in a spiritual heaven. Wild stuff. Many people get caught up in the mediation aspect of Christ's ministry. I believe I demonstrated sufficiently that the mediation was needed to bring the saints from the old covenant into the new covenant, as we read about in the book of Hebrews. Mediation 
Not done with the blood of goats and bulls, but with the blood of Christ. A new thing was happening. The sacrifice that was offered once and for all does not need to be done again and again. Therefore, Christ mediated the covenant and now rests in that authority. Again, no need for a physical being seated, seated in the heavenlies. The argument put up against, against this you know, understanding I'm bringing before you resonates more in line with the way Muslims attack the deity of Christ. A lack of understanding the context of, and what is, what is being, end of what is being said. I recently went to a debate where a Muslim debating Dr. White declared that if Jesus was God, he didn't need to hear God or learn about God, clearly demonstrating a misunderstanding concerning the hypostatic union and Christ's willingness to put off who he was to come in the full nature of humanity, all the while being able to display miraculous things in human form. Another interesting point is that after Christ's ascension, the Apostle Paul declares that Christ appeared to him and that he had seen the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. What was his appearance then, and how does it compare to his post-resurrection, pre-ascension appearances? In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 4, we have this account. As he journeyed, and he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was definitely Jesus. In verse 17, we are told that this was the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came. Here was a post-ascension appearance by Jesus in which there is no mention of a bodily appearance. The only physical manifestation mentioned was the bright light from heaven in a voice. Before one says that Paul did not see Christ's appearance because of his blindness, consider that those that were with him were not blinded. And it says they, were a, they witnessed the appearance of Christ as a light. Acts chapter 22, verse 9. If Jesus had a physical corporal body, which he inhabit when he comes a second time, according to the futurist, why did he not reveal himself like this to Paul on the road to Damascus? Was he saving his physical body for later? Or could it be that his physical body had been changed into its glorious essence by this time? Again, note, Paul states that he had seen the Lord. But did the Apostle Paul see him physically? I guess that's the big question. On the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Blue Point Bible Church. If you recall the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he betrayed, took bread, and in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Many misunderstand this passage and think it's saying that once Christ comes, the celebration of the Lord's Supper will cease. Some of our preterist brethren have taken this stance. I believe that Pastor Dave Curtis makes a great statement in this regard when he notes, when the church began to observe the Lord's Supper from Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 onward, they were partaking of it in a new way. It was not the old Passover. It had a new meaning. But while it had a new meaning, it had not yet reached its perfection. In AD 70, when the Lord returned, the Lord's Supper was not to come to an end. It had only reached its perfection. We don't celebrate his supper in anticipation of a coming salvation, but in realization of an accomplished salvation. We celebrate the reality of Christ fully perfected and formed within us, his body, and the Apostle Paul said he labored toward this at the Church of Galatia. Many of our brethren have a false hope of a new glorified body, something I admit I find a bit wacky and funny. Yet they affirm it with a bunch of hodgepodge Bible verses, missing out on the true hope of Israel fulfilled. I find it odd that Pastor Bruce Bennett in our debate was able to explain his view of Jesus' resurrected body and how he expects his body to be made glorified like Christ's was, yet the first century apostles did not have this clarity. In the epistle of 1 John, we read, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us all, that we should 
be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, we know we are the children of God, and that it has not appeared as to yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now remember, this was written prior to the events of AD 70. The saints understood they were being raised out of that old covenant. The Gentiles were coming to share in the riches of Christ. However, just as was revealed in 1 Corinthians 15, they did not know how all of this work was going to be accomplished. The Jews were dead under the old covenant, the body of Adam or Moses, whichever you prefer, and wondered how their dead ones, the old covenant saints who died, would come to share in the riches as God had promised generation upon generation. They had no no idea how all of this would come to fruition, but they did know that Christ had prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, will be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17, verse 24. The Apostle Paul reiterated this to the church at Colossus by saying, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Christ would come while some were alive, that generation, and come in the Father's glory. Then it would be evident how all of this was going to work. The question is, did Christ keep that promise? Well, I believe he surely did. And the Jewish historian Josephus records this event in A.D. 66. Besides these signs, a few days after the feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisus, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would be a fable were it not related by those that saw it, and were it not the events that followed, if of it so considerable in nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Moreover, at the feast, which was called Pentecost, and the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as, there was, as was their custom, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said in that place they felt a quaking and they heard a great noise. And after that they heard a sign of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. The parousia, the coming of the Lord in judgment of that wicked generation against that temple and against that idolatrous religion of the Pharisees occurred in A.D. 70. We know from the historical record that no Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem because they heeded the command from the Lord to flee to the mountains, as recorded by 4th century historian Eusebius. So how were they made like him? It is important to note that the Apostle Paul made it clear that he preached the one hope of Israel, the same hope of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the resurrection of the dead ones. Sadly, a failure to understand this promise that was made to Israel, as the Apostle Paul makes clear throughout the book of Acts, as well as in Romans chapters 9 and 15, has led to so much confusion. Israel was dead under law. It was the law that produced sin and death, in an effort to serve as a schoolmaster to lead Israel to the need for Jesus Christ. Israel sought to be restored to their original opportunity of unadulterated communion with God, to eat of the tree of life as the first Adam had prior to sin. In Adam, they had been subjected to futility and were in bondage under the covering of the law of sin and death. The Messiah was to clear this, to remove the shame, to remove, to fulfill the prophecies recorded in the prophets, as well as keep them from the second death. This wasn't about leaving earth and dwelling in supernatural bliss. This was about leaving the body of death defined by law, coming into the full reality of grace in the body of Christ. That was the resurrection of the dead ones, which was consummated in A.D. 70. They were made like Christ, able to go into the presence of God without fear or condemnation that the atonement, the Messiah, by the atonement the Messiah accomplished. This was a conceptual resurrection, something the ancients would have understood, similar to being raised up like the church of Ephesus into heavenly places. Note that none of this demands a change in the nature of our individual bodies, nor does it demand an odd zombie-style Jesus residing in the heavens. 
As author Tom Holland notes, the body of sin is the body that is in covenantal relationship with sin, just as the body of Christ is the body that is in covenantal relationship with Christ. You may be thinking, well, Pastor Mike, you made this awfully clear, but why so much confusion in the church? Well, we must have the desire to re-examine scriptures noting the Hellenization that took place in history. Much of the Hebraic concepts were convoluted once Alexander the Great's reforms happened. And then the gospel went worldwide. We find many of our church fathers using Greek arguments to win others to the faith. You want to understand more? Do not settle for quoting Bible verses. Instead, seek the narrative of what was happening in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. A natural covenant was sown through Adam, his natural lineage. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that first comes the natural, but the natural body was subjected to death by sin, sin by law, and would be raised a spiritual body. This can be demonstrated by reading through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-11. through 11. We must understand what the transition that was happening in the first century was. The gospel story is not about you being dissatisfied while on earth in your body and thus having the hope of escaping this quote-unquote wretched life. Instead, the gospel is about how the old covenant that Israel was under, while it had glory, did not have the glory to save men in a free and grace-filled relationship with God. That covenant was passing away, as the writer of Hebrews noted, and the new was coming into fruition in that first century period. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, all things become anew. How then should we live? If we are in glory, what should this look like to the world around us? Adam was made in the image of God, yet failed. Israel, like Adam, violated the covenant and therefore failed to live as the image of God. For a detailed understanding of the image of God, I recommend going back and listening to our journey through the first couple chapters of Genesis in keeping with our returning to our First Love Bible series. Jesus, not only the image of God, but God himself ceremonially cleansed his people. That way, in and through him, we may walk and live as the image of God in glory. I want to read through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 4, 24, 19 through 24, to establish how we are called to walk as the image, the body of Christ, that where he is dwelling, his bodily form, having the fullness of him in us. Therefore, brethren... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has inaugurated for us through the veil, that which is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are his body, as declared by, first, uh, by Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. Brother Spencer Register on Facebook had noted this, and I believe beautifully illustrates it and answers the question everybody's looking for. The saints indeed became the body of his glory at the parousia when the sons of God were revealed in glory with Christ. Where's the problem? I would like to just end this lecture by thanking the Preterist community for the constant resources and constant involvement in this discussion, as well as glorifying our Lord for clarity in his word. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your revealed truth. We thank you for that body that you had planned before time, Lord, that Christ would incarnate and that he would offer up for all mankind. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your grace through Jesus' blood. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your full presence, glorifying you as the body of Christ. Lord, we lift up all our praises to worship you in spirit and in truth, and thank you for the spirit that illuminates the word of truth and helps us understand our role in this world. Lord, we give you all the glory in through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.